telepathically, the duodenum is in inverse ratio to the coordination of the planifus. Is this stuff on the level, or you're just making it up as you go along? Okay, here, here we go. <clears throat> you want that <clears throat> in the podcast? <laughs> it's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, cutting the watermelon open since 2018. This is episode 49, Four Empty Dunces. I'm Matthew Conium, and joining me as always are my co-hosts, in reverse order, Lesag, Bob, DNA, Denomade, Hayom, or for those of you who walk into speakeasies on all fours, Bob Gassell and Noah Diamonds. How the heck are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting us on the show. <laughs> me too. I'm here for the intellectual discussion. Yes. Um, how's your month been, Marks-wise? Anything to report back on? Well, I can tell you that I'm working on this year's Fredonia Marxonia presentation. Uh, this will be the third of three. The, the trilogy will be complete. Uh, many of our listeners may have seen in 2020 for the Fredonia Marxonia Festival. I put together a presentation called Home Again, the Marx Brothers in New York City. And then last year, the second chapter was There's Nothing Like Liberty, the Marx Brothers in America. And if you haven't seen them, after this episode... Go look at them on YouTube. Uh, this year's will stream live and free on Friday, September 30th. And it's called, If You Get Near a Song, Play It, The Marx Brothers and Music. And like its predecessors, it'll be filled with uh, thrills calculated to please people who love The Marx Brothers a little too much. And I've spent the month fending off attacks on my uh, opinions from last month's podcast. So... <laughs> Thank God that's over. <laughs> Before we get stuck in, I have a, a modest addendum to our discussion of Love Happy, and it's a reminder that there is always more to be found out. I've been down the Love Happy rabbit warren this week with our friend Scott Alexander, because he's discovered that the impression that I strongly conveyed in my book and on our Love Happy show, that Ben Hecht's association with the project ended with him walking out in disgust and taking his name off at a very, very early stage is very far from the truth. It is true that he didn't see the project through right to the end. We have two very funny letters to him from Harpo confirming that. But not only was he fully on board by the time the final draft started shooting, um, he was actually still hanging around doing rewrites right up until the final stages. And in fact, he even contributed to some of Groucho's scenes with the gangster. So uh, who knows, he may even have written the famous Marilyn sequence. Uh, so the lesson is keep digging in the files. Very interesting. And we have all gotten a few tidbits about Ben Hecht, I think, from the Susan Marks book, which we'll discuss in detail on a future episode. But it, it is amazing how much this story keeps telling itself in more detail as the years go by. Okay, so now on to today's bill of fare. We're going to consider the intriguing and lasting love affair between the Marx Brothers and intellectuals, high brows, high hats and sophisticates. And our fourth empty dunce is in reality a fine example of that breed. Actor, lifelong Marx enthusiast and administrator of the Alexander Walcott Facebook group, it's Brad Solo. Welcome. Thank you. And I'm excited beyond belief to be here. Well, I thought we'd do something a bit different this time and do the same thing that we always do, which is ask you what your Marx origin story is. When did you first encounter them? Where did you first encounter them? Why? How? And what did it do to your brain? Oh, let's not get into my brain, but uh, 
early 1970s, uh, preteen. Seen them on the Late Show here in the Twin Cities. Same as Jay Hopkins. Uh, just fell in love with them. Didn't really have any uh, reference from family members or anything like that. Just uh, kind of found them on my own. And then, uh, of course, found things like Wyaduck and the Scrapbook and Joe Adamson's book and that type of thing. And everything went on from there. And then, of course, when VHS came out, my goal was to collect all of the movies, uh, which I eventually did. And uh, the rest just goes on and on. Were you one of the Mark's kids who got the scrapbook for a Christmas present and then was profoundly scarred for the rest of the holiday season? Uh, yes, actually, in 1974, I asked for it because I'd looked at it several times in a bookstore, not really aware of what all it entailed other than I mostly looked at the pictures, the old pictures, the posters, and that sort of thing. And then when... Groucho started letting loose with some of his interesting comments and stories. Uh, yes, definitely scarred for the rest of my life. Well, let me ask a quick follow-up oh. to that. Um, how and why did you become friends with Jay Hopkins? <laughs> uh, through the council. Through the council. Uh, so you weren't the member of uh, the Marx Brotherhood? I was not. I was. I'm. I'm a, a tad bit younger than than Jay. I was not in uh, uh, college age then, but uh, I do recall it. It was really surreal uh, when he posted one of the pictures from the local paper on the council uh, Facebook page one day, and I realized it was a picture that I had cut out of the paper and had taped on my wall of my bedroom uh, when I was growing up, and uh, to realize that I was now talking over pancakes uh, with the man who put that whole organization together. Uh, it was a bit of an out-of-body experience. And then when you discovered that he also had a photograph taken through your window of you as a boy, taping it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've talked to him about that. Uh, we're, we're in litigation over that, but uh, I really can't say too much. And how are the pancakes? <laughs> oh, the pancakes are always excellent. Mainly the maple syrup is what I come for. <laughs> All of which is the perfect stopping off point for, for considering, that before we get into uh, any specific detail, why it is that they are thought of as, as the intellectuals' comedians of choice. Because that's a, a reputation that they got pretty early on and have, have never really lost not just heavyweights like like bernard shaw but you know they're always the the clever person you meet at university uh, you know there's a strong chance they're going to be um marx brothers fans and conversely we see in the trade papers lots of distributor uh, exhibitor feedback particularly in more rural areas saying things like our people didn't care for this with the implication that there there's something a bit supercilious about them something that's a little bit sneery it's not something that i've can immediately put my finger on i mean as i've said many times i do think of them as something intrinsically different although i love comedy and old films and old comedians I do think of them as, as something separate, and in fact, as one of only four occasions, I think, in my life when I've watched something and felt that thrill of, oh, great, it's going to be this kind of thing. You know, one was when I saw the second half of Monkey Business in, in Christmas of 1983. One was when I first watched um, a video cassette of Spike Milligan's Q 
programs, BBC programs. One was when I put on a video cassette of W.C. Fields' Max Sennett shorts, fully expecting to enjoy uh, a famous old comedian, but but not expecting to get that thrill. Wow, he's not just a, a good comedian. He's one of these guys. And the other one I'm, I'm embarrassed to say was when I saw the first episode of a program called Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, which means nothing to me anymore. But But those were literally the only four occasions. So I do see them as something different and something special and something rare. I'm not immediately clear, though, how that adds up to this reputation of them as the intellectuals comedian. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, I think one place to start with this is the useful distinction between intellectual and intelligent. Uh, It often sounds like they mean the same thing and they're sometimes used interchangeably. Um, But there, there really is a key difference here. It's not... It's not how smart Marx Brothers fans tend to be or that you have to be a certain level of intelligent in order to appreciate them. Uh, I don't think that argument holds water at all. It's intellectual suggests an interest in uh, mental processes, in receiving things um, through the mind. You know, the Marx Brothers, it seems to me, are just enough uh, low comedians to guarantee that their work appeals pretty universally and is full of real belly laughs, the kind of laughs you don't usually get on an intellectual joke. And at the same time, they're just intellectual enough. They're just as free-flowing with literary references, and there's a enough of a mind game aspect to the verbal humor um, and many of the premises of their routines that you can kind of feel good about yourself for appreciating their humor. It feels like you can congratulate yourself a little bit uh, for your sophistication in appreciating um, the parts of their act that are slightly higher low comedy. Yes, I, I certainly think that, that there, there um, are things about them that, that kind of flatter an intellectual temperament. Um, ironically, because so much of it is the, is the comedy of, of deflation. But I, I actually think that is one of, one of the main reasons. People always think Roscoe Chandler is just like somebody they've met, but not many people would have the perception to see themselves in him any more than he himself would, I guess. But I think the the um, the element of iconoclasm, the uh, attacking of pretension and sacred cows is one reason, I think. Um, the verbal dexterity as well. In the part of my Groucho book that nobody reads, I make parallels between their work and Sarnoff Mednick's theory of the associative basis of creativity and J.P. Guilford's concept of convergent and divergent thought. And I, I think that plays into it. As, as you said, Noah, there's a degree of uh, cultural elusiveness, references to, uh, to uh, things that, that, that flatter the culturally aware. But ultimately, I think all of these things just reassure the liberal temperament that it's okay for them to then go on and enjoy uh, idiocy and absurdity. It's a kind of a brain catharsis rather than the guilty feeling of I, I really should be watching something with a little more weight to it, which may be the instinctive default reaction to comedy generally. It kind of provides its own excuses for enjoying it. Yes, very much so. It it, it feels like it's a, a, a little bit of a, a sugar-coated medicine pill in that way. Um, to some extent, though, this flattery that it grants its audience is is somewhat flimsy. I, you know, I mean, I do think there's it's very rewarding to watch the Marx Brothers, and there is something um, about their act that resonates with uh, 
deep meditations on the human condition, and they point out in many cases the silliness of of all of us, you know, the silliness in our little social interactions, and they allow us to look at our world a little less seriously. Um, but it's not like reading War and Peace or something. You know, when Wolcott championed the Marxes early on, it became okay for intellectuals and so forth to come out and say that they liked the Marx Brothers. They had an acceptance that not many quote-unquote lowbrow comedians had in their time. And I guess we could think about who else, what other comedians could have used the push of an intellectual? How about if Albert Einstein uh, came out and talked about the genius of the Three Stooges? Huh? How do you think that would <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the reviews, even of the early Chaplin films, there's an awful lot of, you know, this is a vulgar, uh, you know, this is the lowest common denominator, cheap, crappy entertainment and it's only uh when an element of of social observation was was perceived in it that it does a reverse turn and and the smart set are able to join with the masses and say yeah actually we love him too but but we love him for for you know for this reason i mean we even see it with Abbott and costello in fact um who who um came from burlesque and it's it's generally thought that it was the radio that made them cult figures but just as important in fact was a, a 1939 broadway show that they were in called streets of paris which served up burlesque to a to a sophisticated audience and gave them a chance to be to be lowbrow uh, and keep their intellectual dignity intact I think that there's always a, some quality of envy between high and low that uh, artists who we might perceive as being very elevated and intellectual and high-minded um, all perhaps on some level envy the popular appeal and the mass audience enjoyed by more knockabout entertainment and practitioners of lower forms of entertainment may always feel some sense of you know, I, I don't really have approval from the big league establishment. You know, I, I'm not being written about rhapsodically. Um, and, and so anything that meets in the middle has a certain advantage, I think, over the two extremes. Well, obviously, the, the, the big turning point for their, for their reputation as, as uh, darlings of, of the highbrow was when they came into the orbit of the um, New Yorker and Algonquin set uh, when they turned up on Broadway. But that's already jumping ahead because how, how did a vaudeville act end up on Broadway in the first place? Well, one part of that answer is that it's, it is a little overstated in the Marx Brothers literature that we all grew up on. It does help with the storytelling there for it to be this wildly unlikely thing that vaudevillians should wind up being the toast of Broadway. Now, it was a very big deal, but the Marx Brothers are hardly the only people to make that transition, and, and they're also hardly the first. In fact, um, Alexander Wolcott you know, uh, less than a year before I'll Say She Is opened on Broadway, Poppy opened on Broadway. And Wilcutt reviewed the show, and he wrote a very similar appreciation of W.C. Fields, you know, discovering this vaudevillian who had somehow accidentally wound up on Broadway. And Wilcutt compared Fields to uh, a, a Mark Twain character or a Charles Dickens character, you know, granting the low comedian this kind of literary analogy. Um, and not in his opening night review of I'll Say She Is, but in one of his subsequent articles about the show, uh, Wilcutt compared Groucho to Will Rogers, another earlier example of a vaudevillian who became a big Broadway star. 
My favorite quote illustrating this situation is from John Corbin in the New York Times, who said, there are four or five people in New York who rarely go to vaudeville, and they all write reviews for newspapers. <laughs> well, that brings us neatly to uh, Walcott, and it's kind of ironic that, that he's not a name that a lot of people would be familiar with now. In fact, if anything, I, I, I guess he's probably most known these days as a footnote to the story of Harpo, whereas in, in, in their lifetimes, it was very much the other way around. And I'm looking at uh, the biography of, of Wolcott here by uh, Samuel Hopkins Adams, and it says on the front, the story of an American phenomenon which is exactly what he was, a, a big celebrity as well as a, a name to conjure with. Brad, uh, he's very much your specialist subject. How did you, how did you come to be a, a, a Walcott fan? It, it started with the scrapbook because the, there's a nice section in there uh, called Walcott and Harpo. And uh, I, what's funny is when I first read that, when I first looked through that book, I didn't realize... For some reason, I didn't even read. I don't even re remember reading the caption underneath Wolcott's uh, picture. But for some reason, I in my mind, I thought he was some sort of businessman or something. When you see the picture, he's got the hat and he's a he's got the fur coat and everything. And and I thought, oh, this is some sort of businessman. And I was kind of looking at the 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 letters that he and he and Harpo wrote back and forth, and uh, thought. He was kind of a stuffy guy who uh, kind of liked Harpo. And then years go by, and uh, I collected a lot of books uh, about Woolcut and uh, by Woolcut, uh, and then eventually played Whiteside uh, in a community theater production. And by that time, I had really been looking at him as uh, as more of a of a lost phenomenon uh, that we should revisit. Uh, that was back in 1997 when I played Whiteside. And then uh, just a few years ago, I really started looking more deeply in, into his life and uh, the things that he really stood for, which were basically uh, being loyal to his friends and, uh, and as Noah said, kind of, quote unquote, discovering people uh, who had already become somewhat successful and then of course when he blew their horn they became even more successful so i i really started to appreciate what Wolcott did for others around him and not ignoring some of the more negative uh, aspects of his character but uh just kind of concentrating on on what he did and uh then when i started the facebook group uh really wanted to just be encouraging to people and uh, enthusiastic about things. And uh, that's what I've tried to do in, in the Facebook group. So that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at with Woolcut now. Uh, so tell us about some of the things he, he did during, during his, his, uh, his career, because he was, he was a, a considerable name on the radio as well, I believe, not just, uh, <laughs> not just in print media. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he, of course he, he, uh, he went to college, uh, went to Hamilton college and then um, when he graduated, he uh, got a job at the New York Times as a reporter. And then he became the, uh, the theater critic. He was mentor to uh, George S. Kaufman, actually, uh, at the Times. And then he began to write books, not very successfully, 
uh, about people he knew. He wrote a biography, an early biography of Irving Berlin. Then he joined the army during World War I, uh, met Harold Ross, met FPA over in Europe, wrote uh, for the Stars and Stripes. And then uh, when he came back, he became an even bigger critic than he had been before. And uh, the round table began at the Algonquin, of course. Then he decided that he would freelance. So he began to write articles for the New Yorker and so forth, uh, Vanity Fair, and then eventually got onto the radio and became what some people have termed an early influencer, uh, because he could talk about a play or a movie or a book, and almost immediately that uh, particular item would skyrocket in success. And he loved to be around people who were successful, and not just writers and entertainers, uh, scientists, and anybody who had a level of success, politicians. He was a great supporter of, of FDR. He really immersed himself in his world and sought out people who were either on their way to success, experiencing success, or somebody that, that he could help. This may be a difficult question, but getting people turned on to the things that, that turn us on is a skill that, that we would all like to possess, but don't. I mean, what, are you able to say what it was about Walcott that, that made him such a, such a trusted figure that he literally could say, buy this book, and the next day, you know, 100,000 Americans would? I, I believe it was just his sheer enthusiasm. It's become a cliche about the dancing in the streets and yelling from the rooftops and that type of thing. But he, he did actually write those things in his reviews of, of theater pieces and uh, especially on the radio. He really came across as someone who was speaking intimately to every person in the audience. I, I think that's where the trust level came from, that he sounded like somebody who, first of all, knew everybody and somebody that you would be interested in speaking to and then just the the intimacy of his of his opinions i think is what really captured people and drove them out to purchase books see movies and that type of thing and i don't think many people listening to this would actually need to find out what the algonquin roundtable was but but could you just fill us in a bit on on specifically what this intellectual microcosm was that that harpo uh stumbled into well of course the story goes that uh some people wanted to have something of a roast uh for woolcut at the algonquin and so they invited him for lunch and they spent two hours lambasting him as as he often would do to other people and expecting him to just be uh completely overwhelmed by this and not uh not care for it at all because he didn't like to be made fun of generally but when it was done uh with wit and with humor uh, he enjoyed it, and he ended up suggesting that they get together for lunch every day. And so th- the best and the brightest ended up gravitating toward this this lunchtime uh, ritual at the Algonquin, and uh, that's how it came to be. So roughly how long did this did this go on for, and whereabouts in its evolution did, did Harpo show up? Uh, well, it was uh, it started in June of 1919. That's when they had the the, the roast for for Woolcut and uh, went th- 
through most of the 20s as a, as a pretty strong entity. Harpo would have actually been initiated into it uh, when Wolcott brought him to the group shortly after he saw the brothers in uh, Alsatias. And Harpo was immediately brought into the fold because he would listen to everybody. He wasn't trying to top anybody, and they, they loved him for it. Of course, so many reasons for people to love Harpo, but that particular group really loved him because he just generally take an interest in everybody, everything everybody was saying. And, you know, he had, he had something of a wild side, obviously, that everybody sort of lived vicariously through. But uh, his initial interest to them was that he would sit and listen. He would actually listen to people and not try to top them. I've always been interested whether they considered him an equal or whether they treated him, thought of him as like a court jester. I don't think he was seen as a court jester, although as in, uh, I believe it's in the 10-year lunch where, where they talk about the entire Algonquin group somewhat being treated as court jesters when they went to uh, places like the Hearst Mansion or or that type of thing, uh, they would say things like, you know, say something funny, Mr. Benchley, or something like that. Um, You had so many wits that that could come up with things quickly. I picture him sort of just kind of being a a calming force uh, with the round table and uh, listening and throwing in a few quips here and there, but uh, mostly listening and just being an appreciative audience to the rest of the of the vicious circle. Yeah, he always strikes me as somebody who kind of bides his time rather than all the others who are constantly trying to, to jump in and top each other. He kind of, he sits back and he listens and every, every so often when they've almost kind of forgotten he's there, he'll come in and wham and he'll he'll get just the right just the right line in when nobody's expecting. In my, in my imagination, that's kind of how it worked with him. Um, but obviously, uh, people coming sight unseen to this story would say, well, the, the, you know, the natural for that, for that circle would, would have been Groucho. Um, why not Groucho? Why Harpo? If the quote is true, uh, Groucho really didn't like the vicious circle, really didn't like the Algonquin crowd that much, at least as, a, as an entity. Uh, he probably liked individual people and uh, communicated with individuals within it. But, uh, I mean, he, he worshipped FPA. Uh, both, both Groucho and Harpo uh, had pieces in FPA's column and that type of thing. But um, I believe the, the quote is something like, the admission fee was a, a viper's tongue and a, a half-concealed stiletto, uh, is what Gar- Groucho said about the, the round table. So it really wasn't anything he Maybe it was just sour grapes and he was just jealous well susan talked about that uh in speaking of harpo uh he didn't really seem to fit into that group as he was insecure about sitting around and being witty with other people now he had his own writer writing group uh, but they weren't people who were sitting around topping each other. That's the way Susan saw it, that he, he, he liked a group that wasn't sitting around topping each other constantly. And yet, Groucho did participate very happily in that very same kind of dynamic at the Hillcrest Country Club in California, you know, in the years to come. Um, and I think, as with all of these things, it goes back to Groucho being very complicated and contradictory. But maybe at the heart of this question is the fact that 
Harpo was a very secure person, and Groucho was a very insecure person. And Harpo had this deep sense of inner peace, and he made other people feel peaceful and comfortable. Harpo fit in very well at the Algonquin Round Table because Harpo would have fit in well at any table in the world. This group of people took an interest in him at this moment because he had just risen to this cultural prominence. It's also worth mentioning maybe that although in the story of the Marx Brothers, their acceptance by the Algonquin crowd is interpreted as their big arrival, particularly as far as being appreciated by major intellects. Um, but the Algonquinites themselves, you know, they considered themselves the court jesters in the larger court of American literature. And uh, Dorothy Parker uh, famously made the point that in her eyes, the real literary heavy hitters of the 20s were Hemingway, Fitzgerald, John Dos Passos, you know, none of whom were sitting around in New York trying to top each other uh, at lunch. They were doing the same thing in Paris. Um, but the Algonquin Round Table um, and its level of prestige is also a matter of perspective. It's funny that you that you mentioned the, the you know the lost generation in Paris because you do think of them as being almost kind of like on a, a snobbish level or something like that, a higher literary level, and yet they did hang out together and they did, you know, help each other and uh, did crazy things like the Algonquin crowd did too. And uh, Harpo and, and Wolcott went to, uh, went to Europe, uh, spent a lot of time in the same circles as uh, people like Hemingway and so forth, not necessarily having dinner with them, but at least cross paths uh, with a lot of the same people that they, that they knew. It's it's hard to doubt that the crowd in Paris. I mean, I'm sure Hemingway would have loved Harpo too. They, he would have had plenty of respect for him. He's Harpo probably would have had no trouble there either. Or if Harpo's thing was playing cards with the stagehands after the show, he would have fit in just as well there. Stagehands, of course, being a notoriously low form of life. <laughs> all all stagehands listening to this didn't mean anything like that. It's one notch above the insects. Um, <laughs> just remind me now, who were the, the, the Hillcrest circle that the Groucho was? Uh, well, it's, we know uh, George Burns, Jack Benny, right. uh, George Jessel. Uh, those are some of the heavy hitters. Show business people. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. Yeah, that is, it is a different crowd, and it, it probably is a crowd Groucho felt more comfortable competing with. Because I do, I do think a large part of the problem is, it, you know, he'd saddled, all through his life, really, to, to varying extents, he'd saddled himself with this very, very strong public image of a man who is incredibly quick-witted. And, you know, th that's largely the work of scriptwriters. And, and he would inevitably, I think, feel pressure in uh, the company of people who really could do that to, to varying extents to, to come up with it all the time. Um, and that's not an atmosphere that is conducive to enjoying yourself for him. He would much rather, I guess, kick back with with some old showbiz bells and, and recall, you know, the old days of vaudeville and touring and, and you know, and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas, obviously, with Harpo, there's no pressure on him because there's no expectation of him. Yeah, you know, another interesting point here is that Harpo did, wasn't a big reader. I mean, he did read somewhat, but Groucho was a voracious reader of several daily newspapers. So Groucho... May, might have been more intimidated by the Algonquin crowd because he knew a lot more about them. Yes. Uh, he read their columns, you know. Um, on the other hand, one of the things that has been simplified in the retelling over the years is the idea that the Algonquin crowd 
uh, was unaware of the Marx Brothers before I'll Say She Is opened, um, which Wolcott himself maybe was. Uh, we don't really know, I guess. But there's plenty of pre-I'll Say She Is, you know, little cracks in <laughs> cracks in the dam. Um, Groucho and, and Harpo certainly had already spent time with Ben Hecht, and I think Charlie MacArthur, too, in Chicago, um, before I'll Say She Is ever got to New York. Um, and also, as I point out in my book, Give Me a Thrill, the morning of May 19th, 1924, the, the morning of the day that I'll Say She Is opens on Broadway, Groucho is quoted in Haywood Brune's column, bantering in print with Brune about um, this recent trend of, of newspaper critics appearing on stage in reviews, and Groucho's kind of chiding Brune and others for essentially stepping on actors' jobs. Um, and, you know, that's before I'll Say She Is Open, before Wilcutt's review has come out or any of this. Um, and here's Groucho bantering with Haywood Brune in the morning's newspaper. So, you know, th this was a little bit more of a dissolve than a jump cut. So I was talking to somebody uh, earlier this week about th this whole thing of Groucho and intellectuals, and they said, well, what about T.S. Eliot? Surely that's, uh, you know, that's... Um a key point and I and I thought well yeah but then on the other hand that was almost entirely by correspondence and you know I think Groucho is very sure of himself when he's writing a letter because he can take his time over it and he can tool it and he can get it just right it's a very different thing from being sat around the table with T.S. Eliot live you know which I know he did at least once but you know you, I, I couldn't imagine them regularly meeting and having much to say to each other yeah, I think more has been made, perhaps, of the groucho Elliot friendship than really was, again, because of a mutually flattering situation. Groucho and Elliot both really wanted to be publicly acknowledged as a, a friend of the other, um, exactly for that reason. To Elliot, a big deal to have one of the most popular entertainers of the day, you know, uh, a, a, an associate. Elliot wanted Groucho's picture on the wall. And we also know Elliot was a little anti-Semitic and was, I suppose, making an exception here, which made it even more of a big deal. Um, and Groucho, of course, loved the idea that this, you know, outstanding poet, this literary giant, uh, wanted to be associated with him. Um, but, you know, Eliot was not a friend in the way that, you know, Arthur Sheikman was a friend. When I think of Groucho hanging out with writers, I think of that uh, overhead shot in the scrapbook, uh, them all standing around a car. And I can't remember who all was, it was like four or five guys. One of them was Sheikman and one of them was Groucho. I can't remember who else was in the picture, but... Johnstone and Perelman, I think. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, you know, that that was kind of Groucho's circle in the East. And then the thing about the Hillcrest is that it was several years later and and uh, Groucho had been established as a movie star, albeit with his brothers, but certainly his level of confidence hanging around with quick-witted people probably had, had gone up and he felt more comfortable doing the quick quips uh, with folks, maybe more than he would have felt 15, 20 years before at the Algonquin. Yeah, and you, I think we, you can't overestimate the degree to which the brothers' lives and routines change when the movie career begins. And they go from being this 
group of people who is always on the road, always sleeping in hotels, uh, no, not much personal autonomy. You know, you're almost like being in the army. You know, you're just serving this cause all the time, the cause of the show. Um, and then in 1930, they suddenly go from that life they'd been living since they were children to life is basically making one movie a year and spending the rest of your time hanging out in your nice new mansion, you know? Um, and so it does make sense that Groucho and all of them might have just, their proclivities changed. The The things that they needed to, uh, to counter were very different in their day-to-day lives. Um, I want to talk about Harpo's friendship with Walcott, because obviously Harpo was much more than just a, a useful member of a, of a literary uh, circle. They were very, very close friends for the rest of Walcott's life, very close and intimate friends. And I, I get the impression that it wasn't really something that we knew much about until Harpo wrote his book, which which contains such a disproportionate amount on Walcott. I mean, if you look up Harpo in the index of the, the Walcott biography I, I've got, there are a half dozen or so passing mentions, but nothing to indicate the, the, the very unique bond that they had. Similarly, in the book of letters, Wilcott's letters that appeared in the 1940s, there are a few uh, passing mentions. There are a couple of interesting pieces. There's one here in a letter to Lily Bonner from 1933 in which he says, Harpo calls from Hollywood to say that he will be here in two or three weeks and after perhaps another two or three weeks will go on to Europe, taking his harp with him and giving performances by himself in Vienna, Budapest and possibly Moscow. Recently he shaved off all his hair and is, I'm told, a singularly repellent object. The other night Winchell announced (laughs) that he was secretly married in January to a Miss Susan Fleming. Harpo denied this, but not, I thought, very vigorous so that's quite nice there's also a letter from 1937 to Charles Lederer where he says I have an idea I wish you would present to Harpo but only if you yourself are sympathetic with it it is based on my belief that we who know him have seen an even better show than the public has ever had a chance to see I wish that just this once he could appear in a picture all by himself and governed only by his taste and his imagination. As this would present many difficulties, both per- both personal, professional and financial, it is my idea that he should do a short, or three shorts, just for the hell of it. Just for himself, or for that matter, just for me. I can envisage it as a combination of Benchley and a Disney symphony. You, or Benchley, or MacArthur, or all three could write it for him. Why not? So that's very, you know, it's, uh, 1937 there, he's actively uh, promoting... Um, Harpo as a solo star. Um, but in the entire book, this large book of letters, there's only one letter uh, preserved here that is to Harpo from Walcott. And again, it's from 1937. And it's about a meeting between Harpo and Helen Keller. And he says, Dear Harpo, this is the reminder I promised about Helen Keller. If you have it in mind to send flowers, remember that for a blind person, one flower that smells like all get-out is better than the most costly bouquet, which may be surely something to look at. Uh, And then a bit later on, he says, have you read of Mice and Men? Just your dish, just your length, which is a a, a backhanded recommendation if ever I I heard one. And it's uh, signed the Prince Chap. And then it says, P.S., 
come to think of it, Helen would prefer a bottle of bourbon or scotch to a mere bouquet any day. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we don't really get much of a sense of, of, of what incredibly close friends they were. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Brad? Well, I, I think, uh, of course, the Algonquin roundtable, uh, the introduction there to the Thanatopsis poker game, I think was even more fulfilling for Harpo because he could go to the poker game after he did the show, whether it was Animal Crackers or what have you, and um, around midnight, go to the Algonquin, upstairs at the Algonquin and play poker with uh, FPA and George Kaufman and Haywood Brune and that type of thing. Um, and then Neshebe, Neshebe Island in Vermont became really Woolcott's domain, but there's so many great stories about how Harpo just did funny things, crazy things there. And uh, I, I can imagine everybody just enjoying being there. I, I think I think some of the things that Wolcott did on Neshebe, uh, like making everybody listen to his him read the morning mail and uh, let's go, all go out for a swim in the freezing water and that type of thing, <laughs> I think Harpo might have taken the edge off of some of Wolcott's dictatorship at the island uh, just by reminding everybody that, hey, we're here to have fun and that type of thing. So I think Woolcutt and Harpo really were a yin and a yang that neither of them really expected in life, but neither of them really wanted to, they, they really wanted to keep enjoying it. And they went, to, they went to Europe several times together. And of course, you have the stories of, uh, you know, Bernard Shaw and uh, Somerset Mom and H.G. Uh, Wells and Woolcott introducing Harpo to all these people. And of course, Harpo turning those introductions <laughs> totally on their head and totally embarrassing Woolcott to the point of rage. Uh, but Woolcott loved, secretly loved every minute of it. So they were really connected on some sort of level that a lot of people just couldn't understand if you looked at Woolcut as an entity and Harpo as an entity, you you never saw them. You never could understand how, why they would be together. But obviously, they were to some extent uh, in the public mind because uh, Kaufman and Hart brought brought Harpo into uh, the man who came to dinner, uh, and and obviously along with. Uh, you know, the Noel Coward character and uh, the Gertrude Lawrence character and the Eckstein, Dr. Eckstein's character. This was something that they expected at least the New York audiences to recognize as, oh, of course, you know, Harpo, quote unquote, Banjo would come to visit Whiteside slash Woolcott. And, uh, you know, obviously it's one of the highlights of the, of the play. So obviously there was some sort of public recognition that there was a connection between the two. But as you say, not nearly as deep a connection as uh, most people would recognize. And do you think they each saw in the other qualities that they didn't themselves possess, but, but admired and, and sort of would have liked to have had? I, I, I think that's true of Woolcott looking at Harpo. Because Woolcott, I think, always longed to be the the free spirit that Harpo was and the the, the the giving person that Harpo was. I really truly believe that Harpo spent his entire time with Alec just trying to trip him up in his, you know, just just as as you would expect his character to do in the films. You know, they always say that Harpo's character 
uh, on and off film was really, really not that different. And I think Woolcut was the ultimate balloon to burst, uh, <laughs> you know, t- in life. And Harpo just just couldn't. I mean, I think Harpo, I think Harpo truly had affection for for Alec, and truly had a love for him and respect for him. But every time that Alec would introduce him to somebody else, um, I was just looking again at the stories in, in Harpo Speaks, how, uh, of course, everybody knows the, the Shaw episode where Shaw pulls the, the towel off of uh, Harpo as he's sunbathing and leaves Harpo totally naked in front of Mrs. Shaw. And then there's the story of uh, how they went to uh, the home of Somerset Mom and the bedroom window overlooked the pool so that Somerset Mom could dive into the pool every morning. And of course, as soon as Harpo heard that, he stripped down, jumped out the window, and Alec went into a rage. Somerset Mom stripped off his clothes and jumped out the window and left Alec holding the bag. So there was there was nothing that Harpo wouldn't do. I think between the fact that he was just a totally free spirit and had no inhibitions about about doing something that he thought would be fun and, and always that chance to take Alec down a notch. Harpo is so physically comfortable and physically free and uh, and expressive. I, I'm sure Wilcut saw something of what he wished he could have been in there. Uh, and Wilcut was just the opposite of that. Um, he had he had been a very ill child. He also had some wartime injuries that it's not entirely clear that may somehow be connected to his apparent. Um, lack of sexuality. Um, I think for, for Wilcott, the energy of his mind was, was his existence and the challenges of also sponsoring a physical form on this planet was, I think, um, gotten Wilcott's way a lot and caused a lot of trouble for him. And, and he, he did die quite young too. Um, whereas Harpo seemed to be this physical specimen who was capable of anything, never uncomfortable. And yes, I mean, the stories about like stripping off his clothes in order to surprise someone or jump in a pool or, or otherwise demonstrate his great comfort and freedom. Uh, Wilcut must have, it must have really made an impression on Wilcut. I, I think, yeah, I, I think he loved it. I think he secretly loved it. You know, maybe the, the one thing that actually pushed him over the edge, I remember from uh, Harpo Speaks, where he talks about, how Harpo, he, he kind of stole the show when they were doing the Yellow Jacket. And I think for once, Alec really wanted him and expected him to stay within the confines of what was proper. And of course, Harpo didn't. And Alec was furious with him for, for quite some time. And then eventually erupted over a game of backgammon or something like that and threw the board on the on the floor and said something like damn it harpo if you don't love me who's going to love me it was his way of kind of apologizing uh because he had he had gotten mad at harpo and then harpo kind of distanced himself from alec for a while and um he finally broke the ice and just broke down and said basically if i lose you who else is going to want to be around me I, and I think I think he did realize to some extent that his accessibility was due to his friendship with Harpo, uh, at least for for the Algonquin and Neshebi crowds. I, I think if Harpo had turned away from him, um, 
he would have he would have lost a lot of a lot of affection amongst that group. Did he have any type of relationship with any of the other brothers, or make his feelings known about the others? Um, not that not that I'm really aware of, other than uh, what he said about them in uh, in reviews, uh, the Alsatia's review, that type of thing. Uh, as we all know, Chico was off doing Chico things, and uh, Groucho didn't really really hang around the uh, the Algonquin crowd. So it, I don't think he really had. I wouldn't want to say much use for the other for the other brothers, but uh, it didn't really connect with them on the level that he did with Harpo. He was at Minnie's funeral. Um, I mean, he was he mm. he was with them as a family for some mm-hmm. you know some important moments. I don't think he mm-hmm. had obviously he didn't have anything close to the cl- the closeness that he had with Harpo. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you're right, Brad, that in in print he did sometimes seem to be deliberately spreading it around a little his his opening night review of I'll say she is as we all know was extremely generous to Harpo um and perhaps uh, also said a couple of nice things about Groucho and somewhat slighted the other brothers but in the next weeks after that Wolcott wrote about the show a lot more in in follow-up columns and um he did seem almost deliberately to, to also go out of his way to praise Groucho and Chico and even Zeppo uh, Wilcott said in one of his pieces that summer uh that uh, Herbert Marx uh is a lot like the House of Lords in that he does nothing in particular but he does it very well <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned earlier that there were negative sides to his personality, and you do get the impression from reading Harpo Speaks that it, although it was a very close uh, friendship and a very intense one and a very long-lasting one, it was it was often not an easy one for Harpo because Walcott had a side to him that could be very vicious, verbally vicious. I was just looking through the, the, the letters, and there's a letter here to, to Lady Colfax. I'm not sure who that is, but it's from 1942. And Wilcott writes, After all, each of us has a totally different relationship with every other person in the world. One does a few jobs well, and a few more not so well, and many badly. Once upon a time, I discovered that through a complete misunderstanding, one of my good jobs was angry with me. I couldn't wait to get to him. I straightened out his misunderstanding and then got madder and madder, banging on the table and yelling that if he didn't like me, there was no reason why anyone on earth should. He had seen the best side I had. It was Harpo Marx, if you want to know. Uh, Harpo's ability to tolerate Wolcott was undoubtedly part of this. Uh, you know, um, yeah, Wilk- uh, even Harpo's loving anecdotes about Wolcott in his book and, and Susan's in her book now uh, make it very clear that Wolcott was not necessarily an easy person to get along with. He was narcissistic, he was um, cantankerous, um, and he also had a, a real. Uh, a strong and exaggerated sense, it would seem, of of personal slights. You know, he perceived personal slights um, everywhere. Um, and I think Harpo, partly because he was so very used to living with big personalities, uh, didn't have any problem with that. All the Wilcott stuff that many people, including, I'm sure, Groucho, would never have tolerated in a friendship, it just kind of rolled off Harpo's back. Harpo was pleasantly amused by things that would have really rankled most other people. Yeah, I, I think Harpo could, as you said earlier, he he could have traveled in any circle 
and been comfortable. Uh, Wolcott happened to bring him into that into the Algonquin circle, and he enjoyed it. I think he really loved the success that he and his brothers had on Broadway. And so, as I think as Susan might have said about the, all the brothers, it was like they, they had more money than they knew what to do with. And so Harpo loved to travel with Wolcott, go and meet new people. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he even thought about where he was going. He just knew he was going to meet new people, see new places, uh, see places and meet people that he wouldn't have otherwise had he not been successful and, and, uh, and hooked up with this particular crowd. I especially love the quote from Susan's book, how Alec said to Susan, I'm going to say something to you, and I'm never going to repeat it. It shall never be referred to again. I want you to know I approve of you for Harpo. When I read that, I was like, oh, that brings everything full circle uh, for me because I knew that Susan made Harpo happy and vice versa. And I knew that there was a, an affection of Alec for Susan. But then uh, I, I think Alec's whole world kind of came together when he realized that Harpo was now going to go into the rest of his life being happy with a person that made him happy. And, uh, and, and I think maybe in some ways might have even, I don't know, maybe taken some of the pressure off of Alec to be Harpo's companion. I, I don't know. I, a, lot of, a lot of interesting dynamics there, but uh, it, was, it was just a very heartwarming uh, thing to read. It's so true. And, and that beautiful moment in Susan's book that you're describing really underlines a point that uh, Harpo and Wilcutt were f- family. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's how close they were. Um, you know, Harpo named two of his children after Wilcutt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Wilcutt said the greatest honors in his life were that Charlie Chaplin dedicated the gold rush to him and Thornton Wilder dedicated our town to him. And Harpo gave his first child the name William Wilcutt. Marks, um, so I mean, this was this was more than even a very close friendship, and I think one of Harpo's great skills is that he was really very good at being a brother. You know, he was a good brother. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a lot of practice being a brother to very extreme brothers, and his close friendships, especially his close male friendships, um, principally with Wilcott, but also he and Charlie Letter were extremely close that way. Uh, uh, Harpo and Ben Hecht also had this kind of friendship where there were periods where they saw each other constantly. Um, Harpo was really good at that. And, and there it seems like a lot of these close friends, as is true with many of us, were, were more accurately described as Harpo's family. I'm always I'm struck by this passage from uh, Wolcott's uh, piece, My Friend Harpo, which appears in uh, While Rome Burns. Um, it's obviously, uh, it's obviously, a, a, you know, it, it's a comic piece, but but something of of, uh, of the very real intensity of their friendship comes across. And he, he writes, uh, uh, let me mention that my enthusiasm for Harpo is, I know, reciprocated. Indeed, when I go to the ends of the earth and come back again, there is no welcome which I can count on quite so surely as I can on his. For then his loving kindness invents a score of ways to warm the foolish cockles of my heart. Furthermore, he carries his approval of me to the mad length of thinking I have a kind of beauty. Many a time and oft I have read as much in the melting glance of his topaz eyes when he's been sitting with his head on my knee the while I stroked his tousled foretop and tweaked his roguish ears. (laughs) 
there is even some evidence that he thinks I smell delightful. (laughs) (laughs) And doesn't it turn out that Wilcott may be talking about a dog named Harpo? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. He's talking about his poodle, yeah. Yeah, and the first time I read that, I was like, (laughs) this is really weird. (laughs) And then, of course, when it got to the end, it was like, oh, of course, that, you know. Wilcott was was really the the kind of the, the, the... well, I don't know. They might have been contemporaries, but uh, I always think of Paul Harvey when I read one of Wolcott's, a lot of Wolcott's stories, because you always have that. You have this build up, it's build up, build up, and then the twist at the end, and you get the rest of the story kind of thing. And um, there's always a surprise. Um, that was one <laughs> of the things that he loved to do. And uh, uh, so many times Wolcott would tell stories not really caring about if he got the facts right or not. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. The tousled head should have been the giveaway there. I think he should have, he should, he should have <laughs> not mentioned that, I think. <laughs> what, what do you guys think about Wolcott as a writer? I, I occasionally read somewhat uh, derogatory things about his writing, and it is true that he writes in a, a very mannered, uh, somewhat ostentatious, you know, it's very embroidered prose by our standards now, but I find his writing really beautiful and interesting. I really enjoy his writing, not in the same way that I enjoy Parker or Benchley, but just uh, almost as a throwback to uh, an earlier time and and seeing the world through Wolcott's eyes, it's almost like a time machine. You know when you're reading his stuff that you're not reading somebody who just wrote this last week. Something like Gilbert and Sullivan. You enjoy it. You enjoy the intricacies of it. You enjoy the skill that went into the creation of it. But you know that it's not something that necessarily speaks to you on a contemporary level. But uh, it's fun. It's fun. Or he'll find a way to say in a hundred words what anyone else might say in ten. But I enjoy those other 90 words. (laughs) So if I wanted to to read some Walcott rather than read about Walcott, what should I be be looking at? As I say, I've got the letters, I've got Walroam Burns. Uh, What else is is out there that I I should be uh, dipping into? Uh, Long, long ago was uh, his... uh, kind of follow up to uh while rome burns it's uh, more of his his articles and actually if you get a copy of the portable wool cut all these things are floating around in in, in used bookstores or online but uh the portable wool cut has the while rome burns long long ago a few letters and then you can find some of his articles online i think some of the vanity fair articles are online that that's another thing where that has really helped me in the past several years uh, to come to know Woolcut better is just the availability of things uh, online. You don't have to necessarily have the physical books, although I love having physical books. But as far as say Vanity Fair articles, you don't have to pay sixty dollars to get that particular issue from 1939 or what have you. You can you can go online and find some of these things. So they're all out there. Sometimes uh, there's rabbit holes to be gone down, but uh, there's a lot of his stuff out there, and and uh, it's it's very similar. It's said that while Rome burns is pretty much the best of what he wrote a long long ago is something of a come down because he wasn't spending as much time writing, but I I still enjoy it. So that that would be another large 
collection of, of his uh, articles in one place. Right, well, that about takes us to the end of our discussion of uh, the Marxism, and the intellectuals, and in particular, Alexander Woolcott. And thank you very much indeed for joining us, Brad Solo. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And can we ask you to select our final song, please, sir? Well, I would love to hear the title song from a musical that was written in 1967 based on The Man Who Came to Dinner. It's a musical called Sherry, and the title tune is called Sherry. And um, I believe we have a recording of Marilyn May from 1967, I discovered her, as Wilkett would say, uh, several years ago. She's now 94 years old, but she's been singing cabaret uh, in New York and around the country for years. And I see her every time she comes to Minneapolis. Uh, she's a wonderful uh, ball of energy at 94. She still belts out tunes. I have yet to hear her sing this live and in person, but uh, I would love to hear uh, her rendition of the title tune, Sherry. Sorry, no. <laughs> Sherry, you fill my cup with happiness, Sherry. You fill it up with happiness. You make this life a glorious game The sound of your name Can set me aflame With gay anticipation, Sherry You make me feel deliciously merry Sherry with you, my darling Sherry. Tell the man how you feel. Your brand of fun's unbeatable, Sherry. Make him know it for real. Your grand and undefeatable. You fill this world with tingle and zing. Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. 
Matthew Cunningham Spooks, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!